So that's kind of the recap of where we've been with the Trinity. Now, I want to talk about, as we, you guys probably are all excited about, one of the greatest inventions or one of the greatest features or aspects of the Apple iPhone, which is the portrait mode. Now, take a look at this treasure right here, and I'll take the, the giant case off it. When my wife, and we all went to Japan back in 2018, and I bought this phone. I don't even know what that is. I bought this phone, this is the iPhone 7 Plus, the behemoth of, because do you remember it has like the two little, the, the, the dual lens camera, and this was the one that could do portrait mode, right? That was like a big feature that they were saying. I think this is one of the greatest features that they have on, that they've ever come out with on the iPhone, right? Way better than Siri, way better than what other gimmicks has Apple come out with on their, their phones? Um, the face recognition, all that kind of stuff. The, the portrait mode on the phone is absolutely remarkable. So I bought this phone right before we went to Japan um, because I wanted to be able to utilize that portrait mode. So the first actual photo I kind of, you know, you can in your photos you can sort by um, type of photo. The, here's the first portrait mode photo I have taken in my entire life. Ladies and gentlemen, the big reveal of, oh, that's not very clear, of Jeanette. Um, <clears throat> So this was the first one I bought it, and I think we went to the beach. It was a little bit before we left for Japan, and then, um, and and then again, uh, here here's just some other ones that you guys had sent in, just so we can kind of, we can just kind of relish and enjoy the portrait mode nature of Apple Apple Photos. Um, this is the one my wife sent me of Alice at San Diego. Oh yeah. I think that was the the water fountains. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think so. We did that little trip down to kind of Coronado in San Diego, and there was that little outside water feature. Next up, ladies and gentlemen, the finest family in all of West Garden Grove, the Schatzels. Look at those two. Look at the. I mean, this one right here stole my heart. You know, I don't really want to. Liz, not to say, you know, I don't. But this one right here, look at those boys. And that smile? Come on. Huh? That's a Christmas card? Man. Brooks, forget about it. Look at you up there, man. Enjoy it. You're having your moment. You're looking at a farm book. Come on, brother. Um, <clears throat> so, I, I mean, just great, great photos um, from the Schatzels. And then, oh, man, I know the stories, stories you weren't here, but they sent a couple treasures. <clears throat> Look at those two boys just chewing on those donuts. And then he, I got both from uh, Elise and from Phil. So then there's Josie and, and Eli, and then I like this little one of Jack, you know, kind of scrunching up his nose and, and doing that little thing. Um, and then JoLynn sent me a couple this morning. There's one from Molly and Ronnie. Um, I don't, maybe that's, that could even be, that could even been like yesterday, right? Lake Kachuma? We'll have to, we'll have to confirm that. And this, I'm wondering if this was actually yesterday, um, or because they're kind of up in that, that central coast. So Robin Jolin, great photo of Robin <clears throat> Jolin. Speaking of Christmas card, Robin Jolin, if you're watching Christmas card, that one. <clears throat> um, and then Eric Gunn sent me a couple this morning. So there's Dietra and Junior, which is a great kind of portrait mode shot. And then this one, this one is uh, Eric and, uh, and, and Junior and Chica, their dog Chica, which is a great kind of father-son photo. So that's, that's, the, that's the full extent of the portrait mode uh, situation. But... Oh. I don't know what it is. Because I was going to send, like, is it, just, is it just like, oh, it's not landscape? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, like, almost sent one in, but I was like, oh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Brian, that's so awesome. 
the, my, my personal greatest invention of iPhone is Brian's like, I have no idea. <laughs> Portrait mode. Um, so like, I think this is, this is probably the best one where it focuses in on your portrait okay, so and then blurs the background. Yeah, so. Yeah, again, kind of, this is, this one's good of the boys too, kind of focuses in on the portrait, or Liz focuses in on the portrait, um, and then like everything in the background gets blurred. <clears throat> it's good you asked that question because you probably would have been lost for the rest of the sermon. <laughs> um, so again, this idea, which I was going to, you know, is, is, is you emphasize the portrait, the foreground, and then you blur the background. It kind of just takes a lot of that noise out of the background. Um, now, I want to go to an evangelist from portrait mode, and we're going to get back to portrait mode. That'll kind of weave in and out. In the early 1900s, named L.W. Munhall, who wrote an article called The Doctrines That Must Be Emphasized in Successful Evangelism. Anybody read that one? Uh, not me neither. <laughs> the Doctrines, I think it was like 1907, I think that he writes this, this article. The doctrines that must be emphasized in successful evangelism. Now, when he talked about doing evangelism, think Billy Graham or think somebody going out and preaching the word and, and declaring the word, like that kind of classic evangelism where, you know, there's lost people out there and you're going to go preach to them and evangelize them. Um, it had kind of all the traditional um, doctrines of sin, redemption, resurrection, obedience, assurance, those sorts of things. Um, <clears throat> But this was, this was actually kind of summarized in one of the Trinity books that I'm reading by a guy named Fred Sanders called The Deep Things of God. And Sanders makes this note as he was kind of talking about, um, about this article. He says, this, by the way, this quote is so deep on so many levels. He says, Munhall knew that the most strategic decision we ever make is the decision of what to emphasize. Now, we can pause right there because... You guys could probably write that down and walk away with that for, for in just in life, right? Think about that statement. The most strategic decision you will ever make, your family will ever make, is the decision of what to emphasize. Do you emphasize your career? Do you emphasize um, status? Do you emphasize comfort, keeping up with the Joneses? Um, do you emphasize godliness? The most strategic decision we will ever make is a decision of what to emphasize. Now, again, we're talking in the context of the doctrines that must be emphasized in successful evangelism, right? So, that, again, that's just kind of, that really kind of caught me off, um, off guard as I've really kind of thought about that statement in my life. What, what am I emphasizing in my life, right? Back to Munhall, back to this, this idea. In order to emphasize anything, we must presuppose a larger body of truth to select from. Especially in times of religious uncertainty, it is emphasis that makes all the difference, right? So again, early 1900s, he writes this. And it's interesting that, you know, you could have written this yesterday and this quote is, is absolutely spot on, right? Especially in times of religious uncertainty, which is kind of where we live right now, it is emphasis that makes all the difference. Let me, let me take you to a little bit of a different, um, a different context, and this is all going to kind of weave in and out. So we're talking about this idea of emphasis and, and this larger truth of body to select from. Um, listening to a podcast a, a couple weeks ago 
and I know a few of you folks have, or we've, we've, we've kind of done some stuff with this, this company or organization or, yeah, called the Bible Project. We've watched videos here and there. They have a podcast and they kind of, you know, kind of go a little deeper in some of these things. So I was listening to this one called, What Does the Word Gospel Mean? Um, and it was like one of their top five episodes and they re-released it. And he, Tim Mackey does an interview with one of my kind of theological heroes, a guy named N.T. Wright, and they talk about, they talk about the, um, this word gospel. And as I was listening to this podcast, you know, when you think about the word gospel, things that normally come to mind, um, sin, cross, forgiveness, redemption, um, resurrection, we kind of think about that word gospel in like, like Jesus dying on the cross for my sins, right? Like if somebody say, what's the gospel? Oh, Jesus died on the cross for my sins. But when I listened to this podcast, what was so fascinating about this podcast what was so interesting about the, this podcast was how N.T. Wright was talking about the gospel, right? But he was, he was framing it in such a larger context, such a larger, um, so to speak, body of truth. He was referencing all the Old Testament, right? He kept on talking about the prophets and how the prophets were going to predict the Messiah and the Psalms and the Davidic language. And the Bible, in some senses, was, was, again, almost like this background in which the gospel made sense. So, using kind of these things, again, paraphrasing some of what Sanders was talking about in, in this part of his book, we, what can and has often happened to the gospel as told by uh, Western American Christian faith, right, is it ends up in an anemic situation where points of emphasis, the cross, forgiveness, heaven, love, are isolated from the main body of the Christian narrative, right? That ends up become, becoming the entirety rather than a point of emphasis. Now, I hope I haven't lost you, but I know that I'm going to bring it back to portrait mode, which is going to make all the sense in the world. So, and I'm going to connect this to the Trinity at some point too, <laughs> So the idea here is this, right? Let's go back to portrait mode. There is a new feature if you are a new iPhone user, or maybe it's just in the new software. I don't know. There is a new feature. Maybe you've seen this in portrait mode. So here's a picture of my daughter, Alice. Um, and this was when we were in Croatia over the summer. Okay. And you can kind of see in the bottom here, or in this, I'm in, you know, kind of photos. And you know, everybody knows you can kind of go in and edit your photos, right? Now, you can see these different options down here where you can take that portrait mode photo. And what actually happens, and maybe you, the sermon will get boring and you can go play with your photos, is you can actually edit out the background. Isn't that fascinating? To where you can edit out the whole background to where it's now just a portrait of Alice, right? Or you can even further edit it to where now it's just a black and white photo of Alice, right? When we are talking about what's happened, so to speak, in Christianity and what, what kind of the goal or, or of, of this series is, and I put it like this um, on this next slide so we can kind of read this together. One of the challenges or the aspirations of this series on the Trinity, right, is to reestablish the Trinity as the background in which everything else, right? We've been kind of talking a little bit about the gospel this morning. Sin, forgiveness, heaven, redemption, love, Jesus, God, the Holy Spirit. 
in which everything else is emphasized. The Trinity becomes the context from which we are able to interpret. Does that make sense? We tracking a little bit more? Sanders, again, would put it like this in his, in, his, um, in his book, The Deep Things of God. And again, kind of a little bit of a paraphrase of what he talked about. I took some of his thoughts and kind of condensed it, but wanted to give him credit. He says that the good news only makes sense against the background of something, listen, that's something even better than the good news. The goodness that is the perfection and love of the triune God. The good news of the gospel is that God has opened up the dynamics of his triune life, his love, right? That's what we talked about last week. We are open to eat at that table, to share in that table, and to sh- I'm sorry, two weeks ago, and to share in that fellowship, that invitation to be with God. So the idea behind this series on the Trinity, right? Sometimes when we talk about Christianity and when we think about Christianity, is we think about it like here in this black and white, one-dimensional kind of situation, right? It's just the gospel. It's just me and my sins and getting to heaven, right? And we say, um, that's not all that it is, right? It's, it's even more than just like here. Like here you might look at this picture and be like, Eric, that's a little weird that you're taking a picture, like stage lighting pictures with everything blacked out of your daughter in a bikini, Right? This image right here only makes sense right here, right? This is what we're trying to do is we are looking at the gospel. We are looking at the story of, of, of all redemption, of all humanity, but we are placing it in the background of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. That's why portrait mode is so important on our phone. It's one of the most divinely... Um, they never knew that they were actually using a metaphor for the Trinity, right? Again, this is, this is the idea, this is the aspiration, is that we're, we're reestablishing the Trinity, right, as the background in which everything else is emphasized. Everything else makes sense. So, let's look at something real quick. Go to Matthew chapter 28. This is uh, just four verses, probably well known as the Great Commission. Bible, phone, whatever you got. Yeah, someone someone wants to read it? That'd be great. Gospel of Matthew, right? This is how Matthew chooses to close his, um, his account, his narrative of Jesus, right? The beginning of chapter 28, Jesus is risen. And then the next little section is that the guards kind of go and report this, that yes, he was in this tomb, but now he's gone. 
And then Jesus appears to his disciples. He goes in front of his disciples and says, here's my, my final instructions to you, right? Is to, to go and make disciples. One of the things from, from our church's visions, when we, when we, our church's vision is when we think about um, this idea of discipleship, right? This is just kind of part of our vision. Um, and if we at one point did have a good website. <laughs> I don't know exactly where our website's gone. Um, but that is on my list of, of things to, to bring us back into the 21st century. We had this on our website at one moment. Um, it might be somewhere on our, our Facebook about us page at, at something. But we talk about our vision. You know, we, we try and keep that in front of us. Like, who, who do we want to be as a church? And, and part of this is this idea of discipleship, right? So for our church, we say that Christian is an outcome not an identifier. Let, let me explain that for a second. Often we say that I'm a Christian or this is a Christian or it's Christian music or it's a Christian program or it's a Christian that, right? Christian kind of becomes a way to identify something. For me, I would think of Christian as an outcome. And what I mean by that is I mean, I always, if I had a, a way and I'm, and I'm on my deathbed saying my last words, right? almost into the very presence of Christ. Maybe my last words are, I think I'm almost becoming a Christian, right? And here's what I mean that by that. Because a Christian is an outcome of a life surrendered to Christ in daily discipleship, right? In the New Testament, this word disciple is used over 250 times, while Christian is used only three we desire to primarily focus our energy on living as apprentices, right, of Jesus, disciples of Jesus, learning to live, speak, and orient our lives around following him. But we don't stop there. Our goal is to live out the Great Commission of making disciples as well as living as disciples. A couple weeks ago, we watched that, um, when we were doing the Explain Like I'm Five series, we watched that NUMA in which Rob Bell talked about that process of becoming a disciple for a young Jewish boy, right? Where they kind of started young and then they would grow in education and then they would follow this rabbi. They, the disciples would follow the rabbi. They would want to do the things that the rabbi did. They would want to live as the rabbi lived. They would want to speak as the rabbi sp spoke, right? So <clears throat> when we think about maybe, again, kind of going back to portrait mode, I would maybe say like this, like disciple is kind of the emphasis, the portrait, right? The Trinity, in some senses, becomes the background, the context in which everything makes sense. Again, portraits often, portrait modes often don't make sense unless you're able to kind of have some sort of context behind them, right? So a disciple, as Jesus is saying, his very last words, here's what I want you to do, right? Go make disciples. Discipleship becomes the emphasis, the portrait. Trinity is the background, the context in which it all Makes sense. So I thought we would do this. We'd end with three things. We are going to look at this Great Commission Trinitarian style, right? How do we read and understand Jesus with that triple underline under the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, right? So Jesus gives us this, this idea of going and making disciples, right? Apprentices of Jesus. Bruner in his commentary, oh man, this is such a great... Um, sentence of how he, he phrases discipleship or an apprentice, right? He says that the word disciple, right, says in effect, 
Work with people over a period of time in the simple educational process of teaching Jesus. Isn't that a great way to think about that? Work with people over a period of time in the simple educational process of teaching Jesus. Think about this church, right? That's what we're doing, right? The simple educational process of teaching Jesus. Think about your home, right? You might have a spouse or you have kids or you have people in your home that you are working in that simple. And, and, and it's not always, um, my mentor Adam would say, more is caught than taught, right? In, in essence, people pick up on how you live, right? More than kind of what you say. More is caught than taught. Sometimes when we are, when we are teaching people, it's just by the way we live, by the way that we act and, and move in this world. So you are doing that in your home. You know, again, my wife and I and, and, and some of us in here are in that kind of lower kid phase of life and you're really in that, that strict education, not strict, but real formative educational um, spot. Uh, maybe you have a friend, a spiritual companion. Maybe you have somebody that, again, this idea of, of making a disciple, this, simply, this simple educational process of teaching Jesus. Now, what's fascinating, and let's think about this Trinitarian style, right? What's fascinating is to think about this, that it's not necessarily just up to you, right? It's not up to your, because sometimes you might think about like, oh man, I don't, I don't know much about Jesus, or it, it can feel overwhelming, or I don't have the competence or the biblical knowledge or the skills or the articulation. Here's where the Holy Spirit comes into play, right? The Holy Spirit is the force, the dynamic, the power that's moving inside both teacher and student. Let me give you an example on that. Sometimes when I'm up here and I'm giving a sermon, right? This simple educational process of teaching Jesus. And I have this, I have like this, this one point, say, you know, Jesus is like a whiteboard marker, you know, he had that whiteboard marker and, and whiteboard Jesus and the whiteboard marker, Jesus and, the, you know, whatever. I don't know how I, you know, and I'm preaching and like, this is my big point. This is like what God said, Jesus and the whiteboard marker, Jesus. And then, you know, you have that like comment over here that you say, um, you know, and, and also in the midst of trying to support this main point, you know, also this week, um, I just learned to ask my wife for forgiveness. I, I kind of wronged her, you know, whatever. And then you have this major point and you have this like side comment and somebody comes up to you after this, the, ser- the sermon and says, man, what you, what you said about forgiving your wife, I've been so angry at my wife for, for months. This is by all the way by just hypothetical example. So don't get this. You know what I mean? But you're like, no, no, no. I had like, this was the point that you were supposed to get was Jesus on the whiteboard marker. But what often happens is the Holy Spirit is just, and this is why we always pray, God, I pray that you would speak to these people. And again, whether that's through the sermon, through the songs, through the Eucharist, through the fellowship, through discussion, come on in girls. Um, Whatever it is that you would speak, the Holy Spirit is that force, that dynamic, that power that's kind of moving in the, the, the kind of teacher the student, right? It's, it's what happens in between. So you have the Holy Spirit, you have the, the way of teaching Jesus, and then it's all just kind of pointing us and tethering us back to the Father of love, right? 
So again, do you see how when you read the, the Great Commission, just real simply, how to go make disciples, and you think about that in terms of the Trinity, of the Father, Son, and Spirit. And then Jesus says, to obey what I commanded, right? To obey what I commanded. Well, I think real simply, it just kind of helps us to know what the commands are that Jesus gave us in the Bible, right? A couple of years ago, I believe, we did a, I did a sermon series, and sometimes, you know, those commands can kind of be like, like Jesus is up there with, with some sort of divine hammer saying, this is what you'll have to do or else. And I remember my friend Jan Johnson said, she interpreted that word command or, or thought about that word command as an invitation, right? Jesus is not up there with divine demands and divine commands. He's up there to invite us into a way. And we did this sermon series called The Invitations of Jesus. And, and I pulled some from this, this list that I found you know, this kind of 50 commands of Christ, um, you know, Jesus says, you know, repent. He says, um, don't commit adultery. He says, be perfect to store treasures in heavens. Seek first the kingdom of God. Don't judge, right? And these are all kind of laid out as, as commands, right? As commands that Jesus gives us. Now, again, thinking about this Trinitarian style, right? What is interesting about these commands of Christ, and you could even take all these 50 and summarize them down even farther, is they're all summaries. They're the essence of the commands that the Father gave Israel in the Old Testament. Right? 613 Old Testament laws. Right? Think about the Ten Commandments. Think about the different uh, food laws, various laws. Right? Jesus kind of summarizes them. He even summarizes them all the way down to the great command. What's the greatest command? How could you summarize up all the Old Testament? Oh, that's easy. Love God and love your neighbor, right? Love God and love your neighbor. Jesus summarizes them, gives the essence of all those commands, and in some senses embodies those commands, right? Is, is literally the walking embodiment of those commands. And then really the Holy Spirit then is the power or empowers or strengthens us to live out those commands, so when Jesus says something and invites us to love our enemy, right? And we talked about this a couple weeks ago. Jesus, that's a wonderful invitation because I know how difficult it is to go on hating my enemy and how much energy and effort and strength that takes me to hate people. Loving them is the far easier way to live. And when Jesus tells us and invites us, <clears throat> if you have something going on, if you, if you have a rift with somebody, if you're angry or frustrated with somebody or or you're hurt by somebody, go be reconciled to that person, right? Leave whatever gift you have. Jesus uses this altar language. Leave whatever gift you have at the altar and go be reconciled to that person, right? And we understand that that invitation, that command, like we don't naturally want to do that, but the Holy Spirit gives us the power, the strength to love enemies, to let our light shine, to be reconciled to people, to keep our word, to be generous people, right? To not lust. All those things are what the Holy Spirit empowers us to do. See how this works when we, when we triple underline the Bible in some senses? You, you understand really what's happening. It's not just Jesus, you know, saying, hey, go do this. The Father, the Son, the Spirit are present. Lastly, he says, I'm going to be with you, right? This kind of idea of companionship. This kind of idea of companionship. Um, one of the most common expressions 
by Yahweh, by the Father in the Old Testament, right? Is this, this idea of, I will be with you, right? So he says it to Abraham when he calls Abraham. He, it's it's, it's the, the phrase that he uses for Jacob, you know, the Israelites, Jacob, Joshua, um, Isaac. When the Israelites leave, um, <clears throat> when they leave Egypt, I'll be with you. When they enter <clears throat> into the promised land, I'll be with you. Um, as David rises, the judges, I'll be with you. Again, one of the most common expressions all throughout the Old Testament, God the Father just is speaking to Israel saying, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to be with you. What happens is, is when Jesus says this in Matthew 28, right? When he says, oh, I'm going to be with you. What Jesus is doing is, he's, it's like Jesus is stepping into those exact shoes of the Father, right? Jesus is just kind of lifting, he's kind of paraphrasing the Father, he's kind of um, plagiarizing the Father, but, you know, again, because him and the Father are one, it's not, I guess it's not really plagiarism, but he's just kind of stepping into those shoes and says, I'll be with you, right? So to understand the companionship that starts in the Old Testament by Yahweh again and again promising his people, I'll be with you, I'll be with you, I'll be with you, Jesus steps into those shoes, and then shortly after this, right, shortly after Jesus dies, he's resurrected, he ascends, man, he sends the Holy Spirit in Acts 2, right? And that is the presence that we all experience within our, that's the companionship. We don't have a, a, a physical Jesus here, right? He's with the Father at the moment. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. We don't have a physical Jesus here. Somehow his presence is even more real within us here and now, the Holy Spirit living deep within our hearts. So, <clears throat> I think that should kind of get us about where I wanted to, to finish up this morning, which is, again, to kind of think about, well, I don't know, just maybe share portrait mode photos. But, again, we're thinking about this idea, right? That, that the idea here that Jesus says as you leave, I want you to make disciples in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, right? He, he specifically references the Trinity. And then we understand this concept. We begin to triple underline things. We begin to understand that it's not just Jesus, you know, kind of spouting off that the Father and the Son and the Spirit are all at work behind. And that becomes the background, the context in which everything makes sense. So, we have a small group this morning, but we will do a few discussion questions. And um, the first one is, yeah, and like I said, that, that kind of, you know, that, like I said, sometimes the Holy Spirit just kind of, speaks to you like I have this idea of the trinity and the point of emphasis and all that sort of you know and and, and the triple underline and, and reading the the great commission trinitarian style and then like the holy spirit's kind of been like Eric the most strategic decision you're going to make is what you're going to emphasize and I'm like man I, I need to really consider that what am I emphasizing right now in my life um, what is currently being emphasized in your life right now and do you sense the loving dynamic of the trinity in the background of that is there something in kind of modern Western Christianity that has been isolated from the main body of the Christian narrative of the triune God, right? Is there something that's kind of been distorted? Again, maybe think of Alice, black and white, no background. Is there something that's just been like, we've made it all about this and we've lost that background. Um, how does a Trinitarian reading of the Great Commission change how you experience and understand the Bible? <clears throat> And then, uh, man, if you didn't get a send a portrait, fo uh, portrait mode photo, 
uh, or you just want to like say, hey, look at this one. I just took this one the other day. You can always share that too. So let's just do a, a couple questions uh, for discussion. And let me just kind of close this in prayer. Because as we think about this, Lord, is again, as we're, we're here, it's this simple educational process of teaching the ways of Jesus, of teaching who you are. We understand, Holy Spirit, that you're present here, that you're speaking individually to one and to each one of us in the midst of um, all the things that we got going on in our lives, our, our work situations, our home situations, families, friends. There's a lot of things going on, but Holy Spirit, you're, you're somewhere here amongst us. And it's all tethering us back to the love of the Father. God, that you unconditionally love us with so much mercy and grace and forgiveness. You, there's always a spot at the table open for us. And you're saying, just come, come, come be with me. Thank you, Father, Son, and Spirit for being present in this church this morning. Continue to be present through discussion, uh, worship, Eucharist, fellowship. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.